You're listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby, Director of Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. This is the Jewish Inspiration Podcast. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Master Masterclass Part 4. I hope everyone had a fabulous week. This past week, we were talking about uh, appreciation, gratitude, and it really was a great opportunity and a privilege for me to spend my entire week focusing on all the incredible blessings that I'm blessed with every single day. And uh, I would say that probably one of the highest and greatest blessings I have is the privilege to teach Torah. That's like, it's awesome. It's such a great, delicious privilege, and I, I love it. I want to share with you today's topic is sharing and carrying someone else's burden. So I want to tell you a story of a perfect example that happened to me about 12 minutes ago. 12 minutes ago. So I'm r- rushing out of my house. Okay, I, I was uh, this morning, I was in Dallas, Texas. I flew back from Dallas. I went for one day. It's another carrying a fellow's burden, carrying your friend's burden. A dear friend of mine has been struggling with a specific matter. And he called me last week. He says, I really need your help. I need you to help me, you know, really get there. I'm like, the last thing in the world I want to do right now is travel to Dallas. You know, it's like, I have a lot of things I want to do. Dallas is not one of them. Okay. But then I was thinking, you know, I'm in the preparation. I'm in the mode of preparing this trait of working on, you know, carrying your fellow's burden. And I'm thinking to myself, if I was in that situation, how much would I love it if one of my friends came and help me work through the issues and help me, you know, deal with all. I said, you know what? That would be the right thing to do. So I got on a plane yesterday morning and I flew up and we spent the whole 18 hours. And another friend also flew in from, from Baltimore and we spent this time focusing on this individual's uh, issues and working them out and coming up with a strategy. And I think it was a very successful trip. Okay. So I get back. I come straight from the airport, straight here to the torch center. We have work to do. No time to waste. And I finally get home uh, this evening. I say hello to my children. I said hello to my wife. And uh, we have dinner. And then a friend walks into the house and he needed to schmooze and this and that. I'm like, oh, oh I, I got to run. I got a class. I got a class. Okay. So I'm like about to leave. As this is all happening, I get a phone call. And that was 12 minutes ago. And a friend of mine calls me up. He's like, oh, hi, Rabbi. How you doing? I'm like, is it anything quick? He says, well, actually, do you have any dentist, any really good dentist? And I'm going through my Rolodex. I'm like, I have a couple, but can I call you back in an hour and a half when I'm done class? And I'll be able to, like, I told him it's a couple of names. And I'm like, and then I was like, you see how Hashem tests you? He tests you when you're not ready, when you're like, in like you got all that stress. So I get in the car. And I start driving here and I open up my phone and I call this friend back and I said, I am so sorry. I apologize. I said, I was just thinking for a second about how much pain you're probably experiencing right now with your teeth and, you know, that ache. And it's like, and I I rushed you off the phone and I'm so sorry. And that's not the right way for me to be taking care of, uh, you know, a friend or someone. And this was, I think, the perfect introduction to this topic. Having true empathy, feel someone else's pain. 
I don't want this to be conflated or or mistaken with kindness because kindness is when you feel that empathy and you want to do something about it. If someone is hungry and I just give them something to eat, I did an act of kindness. But if someone is hungry and I feel that pain, okay, it's the it's the introduction to kindness. It's the introduction to kindness. And it's very possible for someone to do an act of kindness and not even feel the person's pain. Because I don't want to get into your business. I don't want to think about it. I prefer giving you 20 bucks, leave, go, goodbye, and I'm not even going to think about it. And sometimes people opt to do that because it's the path of less pain, the path of less uh, work. You understand? So this is an introductory uh, state for the act of kindness. If someone really wants to do the act of kindness properly, what we would need to do is really feel the person's plight, feel the person's situation. I'll give you an example. Someone comes to your door, and we have the privilege here in our community that people come to visit us from all over the world to collect tzedakah and charity for various causes. And so imagine the following, and I've had people come with such a story, you know, you know, my wife is very ill, um, and I have a child who has special needs, and whatever the, the case is. And and what do most most of us think, you know, we're like, okay, how much do I give them, right? And like, okay, so it's uh, however much money is your standard gift. Maybe if it touches your heartstrings, you'll give a little bit more, okay? And now let's move on with my day. We may have done the mitzvah of tzedakah. We may have done the mitzvah of charity. But did we really fulfill this trait of carrying another's burden? Do I really feel the pain? Do I really get myself into their shoes to understand what it would be like to be in their situation? So many people will say, well, who cares? He came for money. So just give him his money and let him go. So our sages teach us already, and we see this many times throughout the Torah, that feeling someone's situation is very, very important. There are many stories that are written in the Torah, and you wonder to yourself, why in the world does this need to be written, if not to teach us to feel someone else's situation? We have to feel another person's situation. Then we can choose to give charity. Then we can choose to do acts of kindness. Then we can have mercy. Then we can have many other traits that we can apply to it. But we have to really empathize with another person, understand really what's going on. So, And I'll give you an example. So um, we all experienced COVID in one way or another. Either we had COVID, and I hope everyone's doing well, or we know someone very close to us who had it, or we were affected by missing our work or missing our grandchild's play or, uh, you know, some type of event, uh, you know, we all were affected by it. Uh, unless you're living out in, in the moon, right? Literally, right? You had to be affected by, by, by COVID. So I'm going to pick on Dave because you're my favorite guy to pick on, right? Okay. So, so Dave, right? When you were in the hospital in a very serious situation, right? And you were thinking to yourself, like, doesn't anybody get how bad I feel? Right? Doesn't anybody get it? And then 
when someone else is sick, perhaps, do you maybe always feel that same, like, put yourself into that same hospital bed and feel, you understand? It's like, it's very hard to feel someone else's situation. Now, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that tells us, the ahavta l'reacha kamocha, you should love your fellow as yourself. Doesn't that also include feeling the pain of another like it were ourself? Absolutely. It also includes that when, you know, when, when I love myself, I'm able to love, you know, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. This is why it's so difficult. You see, we grew up, all of us, our whole lives, knowing exactly when we're hungry and when we're tired and when we're thirsty and when we, when we want to lay down and when we want to, when we need to use the restroom. And every single one of our uh, needs or right desires, we know, we feel it. But do we know it when someone else needs it? No. Why not? Why not? You, you understand? It's like, it, it, just by the way, this is a trait that women, I think, have on a much higher caliber than men naturally. You know, that the, the, the Talmud tells us that a woman understands her guests very, very well. A woman understands. And I've been a guest in, in you know, I'm, we're hosts more than we're guests, but I've been a guest in people's home where the woman of the home will say, here, here's more to drink. I mean, how did she know that I was thirsty? Like, is she a prophetess? I mean, how did she, right, exactly. It's more than just intuition. It's really, thank you, great, Anna. It, it's, it's, it's really getting into someone else's situation and having that 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 like you're saying intuition, but really connecting with what another person needs. But we can grow up being very oblivious to that, because I know what I want. I don't know what you want. I don't know. You're thirsty. I didn't even think about it. You know, it's like yeah, I once had a guest in my house, and and uh, my wife comes home. It's like you didn't give something to drink. I'm like didn't think about it. Like didn't didn't occur to me. Right, but that's why we learn this this midah. We learn this trait specifically so that we can refresh ourselves and our our proactive way of thinking about other people's situations. Now, let me give you another example. We in Houston here experienced a tragic flooding uh, back in what was it, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, right, with Hurricane Harvey, and it was very challenging for all of us. I mean, this center that I'm teaching from right now, for those of you who are not from Houston, right, we had about two feet of water in here and the whole place was, you know, gutted and we needed to start all over again. And it was it was very sad, but th- this is the least of the problems, okay? The torch center is one thing. Okay, we can get new furniture again. But there are people who lost their entire homes. They lost, I mean, every possession, they lost. I did lose a car as well, but that's again. It's like, it's it's the smaller of things. It's like okay, it's not such a big deal. The people who lost everything, and there are people who came in from out of town, from all the Jewish communities that I that I know of. In Florida, sent uh, sent people, and in New York, New Jersey, all of the, the the communities that 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 you know, they called me up. What can we send? What can we do? What can we this? Hey, you know, and people came. So my daughter at that time was, I think, in seventh or eighth grade. And she, with together with her class, went and volunteered in different homes. 
and uh, and you know to try to remediate and try to you know you have to tear out all the sheetrock and all of the it's a big mess. And she went over to one of the women, the woman of the house, and she sees her walking through the house, you know, like in such pain that like this is where she raised her children, probably her wedding album, probably all of her old photographs and film are all destroyed. Probably all of her possessions are gone. And my daughter, having this intuition, said to her, can I just give you a hug? Can I just give you a hug? And she gave her a hug. And this woman later told me that that was the most impactful thing of all of the volunteers. It was this little girl realizing she just needed a hug. That's it. We think it's so complicated. It's not so complicated. It's just get into what someone else, you're like, well, you know, we'll buy you new furniture. We'll buy you new clothes. We'll buy, no, 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 no. I just need a hug. I need someone to really get it. Someone should get it. Where am I holding? And by the way, there's not a person that we meet every single day of our lives that doesn't need something. It's good practice. Just look at the people around you. It could be your husband, your wife. It could be a friend. It could be a neighbor. Everybody on planet Earth needs something. Can you identify what that need is? Or can you identify what their challenge is? And just feel their challenge. Feel their situation. Okay, so that is the introduction. So the truth is like this, is that what is the cure? What would be the medicine for selfishness? Okay, shearing someone else's burden is the greatest form of selflessness. It's not about me. I know me. How do I take care of you and be there for you? What are your needs? We, we're we talking, and all of the examples I gave were situations where it's challenging for someone else. Feeling someone else's pain, feeling someone else's suffering. But how about feeling someone else's happiness and joy? That's also part of this special trait. And that is when someone else has a wedding, when someone else is marrying off a child, someone else has a celebration, they had a baby, how are we feeling their joy? Or it's like, oh, Mazel tov. very nice. Or do we really like think to ourselves, wow, that is such an incredible celebration. I was once by a, a wedding and I, I, I hope I never forget the story, okay? Because it's such a remarkable experience that I had. So I, I was at this wedding and when the bride and groom come into the room, Everyone is dancing and there's so much joy in the music. And, and there was an individual there and he was just tears rolling down his eyes. I said to him, why are you crying? I mean, this is, this is a, a happy time. Like, what are, you, what are you crying about? He says, I'm so emotional about the joy that the Almighty has that his children are getting married. I thought it was so beautiful. He's just like, God is probably very happy right now that look at his children 
they found love in one another and they're getting married. Like, I was like, that is a remarkable perspective, right? But I want to share with you my great grandfather. I think I shared a story or two about him in the first class. My great grandfather of blessed memory, one evening, stood up. His whole family, I guess they were having dinner. He stood up and he started dancing. He started dancing. So they're like, what? It's like in the middle of dinner time. Like, what are you dancing? He says, right now, my student in a faraway city is getting married. He obviously couldn't travel to the wedding. We, I mentioned previously, he was a handicapped individual. He wasn't able to travel. He wasn't hardly able to walk. And in those days, you didn't have what you have today, the luxuries of, you know, these automobiles that can take a wheelchair or whatever it is. He didn't have a wheelchair. See, but, but his student is getting married now. He felt that joy. It could be two, three, four, five hundred miles away. But he felt that joy as if he was there with that student and celebrating with him. That's this trait. This trait is not only feeling someone else's sadness and, 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 and disappointment, but also feeling someone else's happiness and joy. Being there with someone else. There's a story that's told about Rabbi Arya Levine. Rabbi Arya Levine was the old sage from Jerusalem. You're talking about pre-state of Israel. And he once went to the doctor with his wife. His wife had had an injury on her leg, and her foot, her, her leg was was hurting her terribly. So they go to the doctor. The doctor's like, "What's going on?" So Rabbi Levine says, "My wife's leg hurts us. Right? It's not her leg hurts her. She's in pain. It hurts us. That's feeling someone else's pain. Not only saying it, but really meaning it." And when someone else, when you know that someone else feels your situation, it heals most of, most of your pain. Because you know, someone's there with you. You're not alone. It's almost impossible for someone to have perfection in character without this trait. Without really getting out of ourselves our own natural selfish tendencies, not that we're all selfish, God forbid, but I'm saying that the tendencies that we have to feel our own situation, I again, I know when I'm thirsty, I know when I'm hungry, I know when I'm tired, right? Do I know that about someone else? Am I able to look into someone else's situation and see what is their, what is their challenge? What are they facing? What, are this, what is their happiness? Okay, so there's... You know that this is, by the way, and we should do a, 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 a test for our politicians. What was the number one virtue that God was looking for in Moses? Not an orator. He wasn't a great speaker. But Vayar Besivlosam. He was, saw their pain. He felt their pain. He had an empathy. He had a way of connecting with them that their pain was his pain. God says, that's a leader. That's the one I want. I think we should go to Congress and we should have a quiz of all of our politicians up and down the aisles, right? How do you feel about the people uh, who are homeless, right? All right. 
do you, do, does it really pain them? If it doesn't pain them, they, they're probably in the wrong position. But that's not where we go for an example of good mitos. Right? We don't go to Congress for an example of good mitos. There are some, by the way. I've met some politicians who had very, very fine character and they were really genuinely caring about. But it's, 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 it's rare. You know, there was a story that's told. My grandfather, I heard this from my grandfather many times, that his rabbi, Rabbi Yeruchim Lovavitz, was a very, very spiritual, holy angel. My grandfather called him like an angel. My grandfather even would say that he was born when he arrived at the doorstep of the yeshiva. He was in his older teen years, but that's when he felt like he was born when he was introduced to the life of Musser, to character development. It was he he laughed at when when he was in the lunchroom like one of the first days. So they asked him, Nusa, how old are you? So he said, I'm uh, 19 years old. And everyone started laughing. Like, he's like, what's funny? I'm 19. He says, no, he's a year and a half old. He's six months old. Like that, they they counted their life as beginning of when they met their rabbi, their master, uh, Reb Yeruchim. The holy, the holy sage from from the Mir, uh, in Poland. So my grandfather saw Rabbi Yeruchim on a, I think he arrived on a Tuesday or Wednesday and a Thursday, and not only that is that every person who met all the students who met my grandfather as he arrived, they gave him such a, a bright smile. Oh, it's great to see you! Like you know, it's like, and he's like. Did I meet these people before? Like, how do they know who I, like, everyone is so excited to see me. And he realized that there was a whole different way in which these students were educated through the, through the path of muster study, through trait development, character development, really being happy and genuinely excited to meet another person, to greet them with a smile. So Rabbi Rucham, the, the headmaster, let's call him, of the yeshiva, so he met him on Tuesday when he arrived, on Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, and he knew where he sat in, in the study hall, where they prayed. He knew where the rabbi sat. Friday night, my grandfather looks, and there's someone else sitting in the rabbi's seat. So my grandfather's like, maybe we should tell that person that he's sitting in the rabbi's seat. They're like, no, 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 that's the rabbi. He said, what do you mean that's the rabbi? It's a totally different person. My grandfather was not senile, okay? He, 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 he was genuinely could not recognize the rabbi because on Shabbos he had such a glow. He was a different person on Shabbos. The person he saw on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday was not the same person he saw Friday night in the yeshiva. He, was, he had a glow and he, he just couldn't recognize him. But one Shabbos, they saw Rabbi Rucham's face looked, not only that it didn't look like a glow, it looked like it was worse, like he was dead. He looked like he had no color. Nothing. So they went over and said, is everything okay? See, he said, this and this Jew died. I just got word that this and this Jew died before Shabbos. They said, that Jew, that Jew was a terrible person who did terrible things to the Jews in his community. And you should be happy that he died. 
You know, there are some, some people who do terrible things. You should be happy that the, word, the world is rid of them. So the rabbi said no. He said, as Jews, we say, and this, our sages teach us, right, we're brothers and sisters to one another. He said, so now this individual, my brother, is standing in front of the heavenly courts. What's he going to answer for himself? What's he going to say for himself to defend himself for all of the wicked things he's done? Right? Like, what a response. Even though he was considered to be a wicked person, an evil person, he couldn't fathom that his brother, our brethren, would be in a situation in a, in, in, in a place standing in front of the heavenly courts. He's not going to have what to say for himself. You understand? It doesn't have to be a best friend of ours. You know, when the people in Haiti, when they had that the horrific uh, uh, natural disaster. So I was speaking to a group of students at one of the high schools here. I think it was HSPVA, High School for the Visual, uh, Performing and Visual Arts. And we talked about what happened in in Haiti. And I said, we're going to sit here and we're going to say, oh, it's, it's really terrible. Yeah. Right? And we move on. Let's watch, change the channel so we can watch something else not as depressing. Or when we go to Walgreens, they say, would you like to donate $5 to American Red Cross? We're like, no, not really. Not interested. Or, you know, or if our guilt says, okay, yeah, fine, I'll give the five dollars. Like, no. And now I'm done. So let me tell you what I told the students. I said, I said, I want to stop for a second and imagine that those huts that are no longer, or those homes that are no longer, was our home. And that after school today, we're going back to that home that doesn't exist. And we don't know where we're going to have dinner and lunch and breakfast. And we don't know where we're going to get clothes from. So what would we do? We'd probably cry. I said the most valuable thing that we can do right here in Houston, Texas for the people of Haiti would be to cry. Just feel their... But they don't even know that we're crying for them. Right? But that's part of what we need to work on is to feel someone else's situation even if they'll never ever know that we felt their situation. We don't have to go over and say, you know, when you married off your daughter, I was dancing in my living room. Right? We don't have to say that. We don't have to declare it. We have to be able to get out of our own little bubble, at our own little world to feel someone else's situation. You know, we, we're, we're, we're in a world that's always thinking about what's in it for me. What's in it for me? Right? So, so if you think to yourself constantly, what's in it for me, it's going to be a very difficult trait to attain. Right? It's just, it's, it, it's not going to be conducive to building and establishing this trait. The more we're able to say, what is the other person experiencing? And how do I connect with them? And, and you know what? Even if it's just a little bit something, take take five seconds to just put yourself in their shoes. 
Because if we do it just with, with a tiny five seconds now, maybe next time we'll be able to be 10 seconds. And maybe the next time, 15 seconds. So I want to share with you an amazing story. There was a, a man who came to one of the holy masters. This is back, way back in Europe. And he says, Rabbi, I need you to pray. My son is very ill. The doctors say there's no hope. I want you to please, please say a special prayer. You have special power, special abilities up with the heavens. Shake up the heavens so that my son can be healed. So the rabbi doesn't know what to do. And he's praying and praying and praying. And he doesn't feel, you know, the, the Talmud says that one of the great sages would know right away, people would ask him to pray for sick people. And he would know right away if the ill person would live or die. As the Talmud says, because if the, if the names, if the, if the prayer came out easily, it, would, it was a sign that it was accepted by the heavens. And if he would mumble or, or, or you know, he would, he would have uh, challenges with how he, his prayer would come out, then he, he knew there was something in the heavens that wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't positive about this. And he would know. This is what the, the Talmud tells us. So, but this great Hasidic master, right, felt that there wasn't, there was nothing. He says, I'm sorry. He says, I prayed, I prayed. I, I'm not feeling it. I'm not able to. The father was so sad. And he goes back home. A few minutes later, he hears a horse pull up in front of his house with a chariot. And sure enough, it's that rabbi. And he looks, he says, what are you doing here? He says, I tried praying. I tried praying. That didn't work. He says, but I can cry with you. Come, let me sit and cry with you. Let me sit and feel your pain. The prayer didn't work, perhaps, but I can still feel your situation. They say that the child was healed and the child recovered. I don't know if it's related to the to the to the rabbi's prayers or not, but I think just the idea that we can just cry with someone. I I I've shared this in, in some of the classes here, but my sister related, my sister had a tragic loss of a child. And uh, it was like, you know, for our for our family, it was a total shock. It was like it, it was like, you know, everything went crashing down. It's like our world this, you know. So she said something very, very interesting. My brother actually did an interview. You can find this this podcast on his uh, on his channel. He interviewed my sister about the mourning process and 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 all of that, the 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 experience of losing a child. Really transformative podcast. I recommend everyone. Maybe I'll put it in the click below in the in the description below so you can have a link straight to that podcast. So she said something very, very incredible. She said that most people, when they come to a shiva house, they feel like they have to say something. I need to make sure that they know that I came because if I don't say something really clever or stupid, right, right, then they're not going to remember that I was here. So everyone tries to make it, right? But in a typical, the way the halacha tells us to perform in the house of a shiva in a mourner's home is that really the person who comes is not supposed to say a word Till the mourner asks them to say something. 
you know, talks to them and, you know, opens it up for them. So she said that, you know, she was sitting Shiva and everybody who heard came, people she knew, people she didn't know. She said one person came who she didn't know so well, sat down in the corner and cried her eyes out. She just sat there and cried. And then she got up, she said the 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 prayer you're supposed to say, and she left. And the next day did the same. She said that was by far the most comforting of all of the different people who came. It was the most comforting. There's nothing to say. Just sit and cry with me. Feel my experience. Feel my pain. You understand? It's 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 a whole new level of... And, and by the way, this can be with a total stranger. This doesn't have to be only with my friends. I know my friends. I know they were insulted. I'm going to, right? How about just a random stranger? Someone who's upset they missed their flight. Instead of judging them that they're, you know, like a crazy person at the gate. Open the door when I'm, you know, they're throwing a whole tantrum. How would we feel if we were in such a situation? Feel their, feel their situation. This trait is taught to us in the Mishnah. In Ethics of Our Fathers, Chapter 6, Mishnah 6, it gives a list of 48 traits, 48 different tools to maximize life. I've given many classes on, on the 48 ways, but I think it's way number 31, I believe. Or 33. No, 39. Way number 39 is this trait of feel no seba olim chavero. To feel the burden with your fellow. Feel it with them. It says an amazing thing. The Talmud tells us, and by the way, this is if you want like the best trick out there, okay? Listen to this amazing trick. Anybody here with a raise of a hand, please show me. Does anybody here want anything? They're, they're seeking something. They want something. Anybody want a job? Anybody want to find a soulmate? Anybody show me? Raise your hands. Yeah. Everyone's looking for something, right? Everyone needs something, okay? You want to hear the most amazing uh, weapon to, to get the heavens to give you what you want? Who's ready to hear this, okay? It's amazing. The Talmud tells us the following. Someone who praises, someone who prays on behalf of their friend, they themselves will benefit first. So think about that. You're looking for a job. You're looking for a job. And you have a friend who's also looking for a job. So you turn to the heavens and you say, God, please, get my friend a job. They need a job. They want to support their family. They want a livelihood. They want dignity. Give them a job. <laughs> What's with me? Don't worry about it. The Talmud says, you pray for your fellow who needs the same thing as you. You will benefit first. So Talmud says, okay, so... That's a good trick. So that I'm just going to go around everything that I'm looking for. I'm just going to find someone else who needs it, and then I'll pray for them, so that I get it first. 
right? So what, are the, what, what, what do our sages tell us in the Talmud? Go ahead and do it. Feel someone else's situation. Pray for them. As a side benefit, you'll benefit first. It's such a powerful thing. I've tried it. It's tried and true. I'm telling you, it's an unbelievably powerful trick. What's that? It's a bonus. It is a bonus, right? Find someone. There's actually a fascinating organization, right? It's an unbelievable organization. It's called Hamitpalel Be'ad Chavero, someone who prays for their friend. And what they do is they partner up people who are dealing with a similar challenge to pray for each other. They swap names to use this Talmud, to use this power of feeling someone else's situation. You cried for your situation? Cry for someone else's. See how that shakes up the heavens. Imagine this. Imagine your child tells you, um, you know, I, I need help with something. You, you don't want to help them. You want them to figure it out on their own. Right? And then they come and they say, forget it. You know what? Don't help me. My friend, my friend needs this help. Can you please help them? What would you do as a parent? Say, fine, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of them. It's like it, it, you know, you, it, it has an unbelievable power. There's an added bonus that we get when we care about other people, genuinely empathize with their situation and look into what their struggle is, what their challenge in life is. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. It's an unbelievable power that we have that we can do this. Now, we have to understand that it requires patience. It requires sensitivity to help people even when they're different than us. Not someone I maybe, maybe someone I don't like. Maybe someone who doesn't uh, have the same values that I have. So, it's humanity. Think of someone on planet Earth who can benefit from these prayers. Pray for them. This is this is it's it's such a new way of looking at how we deal with our problems. Right? We all have got issues. If we can partner up with someone and just pray for them. Okay? You know, you know, my uh, one of uh, it's uh, one of my favorite stories. So, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, who was the head of the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem, he was back in Poland, and then when they when they had to rush run away through Russia um, during the war, and they ended up in in Japan, and then ended up in New York, and then finally came to Jerusalem. Today, it's the one of the largest. It's not one of them. It's the largest Torah institution in the world. It has over 10,000 students learning in the yeshiva, learning Torah all day. I had the privilege of learning there for some time. But the head of the yeshiva passed away in the 80s. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz was an unbelievable person. See, he was once giving a lecture. And his lecture was in a big room. And it was first come, first serve. You came, the, for the ones who came in first got the seats up front. And it started filling up, filling up. And once it was full, the doors closed and that was it. And the rabbi started his class as soon as the doors closed. So the last two guys to get into the room, they came in and they're looking and there are no chairs. 
No more cheers left. So they both bolt it out. They run, get themselves a cheer. They sit down with their cheers and, and they close the door and the rabbi is now about to begin. The rabbi takes his Talmud and he closes his Talmud. And he says, my dear students, today we're going to learn a lesson in what it means to care for someone else's needs. He says, here are these two individuals who are the last two to get into the room. Both knew that they needed a cheer. And they both knew that the other person needed a cheer. So instead of each one running and saying, here, I'm going to bring you a cheer, they brought themselves a cheer. If someone is properly in tune to what the other person's needs are, here, you need a chair. I'll bring you a chair. I'll get myself a chair after. But like it's a charade, really, we're bringing it for ourselves, but we're going to, no, 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 no. What does your mind think about? Does your mind think about what your need is or does your mind think about what the other's need is? I think it's such a perfect example because at that moment, you're just like, uh-oh, I need a chair. I'm going to go get myself a chair. Right. But your friend, you knew, needed a chair too. And this is this is really getting into what it means to care about someone else on on a real level. You know, the the actual name of this trait is like bearing the yoke, no seb beol, bearing the yoke of your fellow, whatever that yoke is, whatever that burden is. That burden could be the burden of joy, which is a good burden. It's a happy burden. Whatever that burden is, whatever's on their shoulders, let's carry it with them. You know the difference between Hillel and Shammai? These were the two yeshivas, the two big uh, uh, institutions of Torah study that are many, many times in the Talmud where they argue one with the other. So Shammai was very, 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 a, a very powerful group of scholars. And Hillel was a very powerful school of, of scholars. But there was a difference. Is that Hillel always let Shammai go first. When you look in the Talmud, you see that the opinion of Shammai is always mentioned first. Why? Because Hillel, the school of Hillel, was trained Let's think about the merits of what they're saying. Let's internalize it. Maybe they're right. Before we spew out our own opinion, oh, we disagree. You know, it's like many times you see these pundits on television. They didn't even hear the other person's opinion. They already disagree. Because they have to disagree. Because otherwise it's boring television. Right? They don't even know what the they don't even know what the topic is. I disagree, sir. Okay, <laughs> let's agree to disagree. Right? It's but let's think about what they're saying. Let's think about how they're feeling about this before we give our own opinion. Before we 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 push ourselves into that into that uh, corner. I, I'll tell you another amazing story from Abraham Shmulevitz. I'll make I'll give you some background. You know. The way the semesters work in yeshiva, it goes from Sukkot all the way till Pesach. So this year, it's a six-month semester, and there's no breaks. All right? That's seven days a week from 7 a.m. 
to 10 p.m. at least. Right? My son is in yeshiva right now, and it's like, it, it's a grueling schedule. It's a grueling schedule. He's in Jerusalem, six months, no breaks. Okay, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And then they have a break for Pesach holiday. And then they're right after Pesach, they're back to yeshiva till, till the ninth of Av. Then they have three weeks break. And then they're back in till after Yom Kippur. Right? Those are the, the, those are the breaks. So now that big semester is a very important semester because in most of these yeshivas, what they do is they have a study partner that you learn with. And that study partner that you're partnered with, that you partner yourself with, you commit at the first day of, of the, uh, of the semester and you're going to be learning together for hundreds and hundreds of hours over the next six months together. And hopefully the partnership clicks. You think alike or think differently, but you at least have the same, uh, same, same, uh, intellectual power, firepower, and you're able to, you know, challenge each other. So it's 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 a it's a big commitment to this study partner. So what would happen? And this happens many times in most places, most yeshivas. Is the first day you pick your study partner, and that's it. You're off to the races. Uh, this one likes to learn faster. He likes to learn slower. This one likes to do more research. This one likes to right. You have different styles in how you learn, particularly Talmud. What happens if two weeks into the semester, your study partner says, I'm sorry, it's not working for me? Well, what's going to happen now? <laughs> You're going to be sitting alone for the next five and a half months. That's not pleasant. Oh, where's your study partner? Oh, I wasn't good enough for him, <laughs> right? Or where's your study partner? Uh, he's just much smarter than me, so he found someone who's uh, more, right? It, it's going to be a very embarrassing situation. It's not going to be pleasant. But, uh, you know, people excuse it because of studying Torah. So this question once came to the rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, and they asked him, what do I do? It's not working out with my study partner, right? I'm trying, I'm trying. It's just not working out. It's not a good, it's not a good match. It's two weeks in. I have another five and a half months to go. What am I supposed to do? So the rabbi would, in a, in a very sarcastic way, say, Oh, you need to learn Torah. Right? You need to learn Torah. So you do what you need to do for learning Torah. But don't forget that your interpersonal relationships, right? your friend being embarrassed, is playing with fire. He's going to be for the next five and a half months floundering. He's not going to have who to learn with, because you you're set up. You found your uh, you know your who, who you're going to jump ship with, right? You, right? You, you're going to move move over and learn with someone else. He's going to be stuck. He's going to be embarrassed for the next right. But the to think right about this study partner, you're you're locked in. Sit with him. So it'll be five and a half months of a lot of hard work. To make it work. To make it work. You have to make it work sometimes. Better than embarrassing someone. Understand. If you understood what they're going to have to endure when you just drop them like that, you'll find a way to overcome it. How many Jews in the world 
know about the Torah? How many Jews really know what the Torah says? How many? We have uh, twelve, twelve, small percent, right? Right. So t- 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 we have t- we have how many? Fifteen million Jews in the world. How many know what the Torah says? Right. So here we are, a group of uh, forty-five of us online, and a nice group here in the in the Torah Center. Shouldn't we take a moment to feel like? I feel like I, I hope everyone feels enriched when they study Torah. I hope so. I, I know that I do. I get excited. I get energized. I get motivated. And I, to me personally, I was never planning to be a rabbi. I can tell you that. When I was 15, you'd ask me, what's, what are you going to be when you're older? Uh, rabbi was not on the list, okay? Right? I would much faster choose to be a baseball player than a rabbi. I would pick a lot of things, right? But not a rabbi. That was not in, in, in it was not in my in my cards, until I started understanding Torah, and it was like so invigorating, and so brilliant, and so powerful. I said, I need to share this with the world. I need to teach Torah to the world. But imagine if the people we knew would never experience what we experience in our study of Torah. And we don't care. We're not going to share it with them. Right? We, we could be held accountable. Why did you just share it with them? Tell them, you know what? Why don't you come with me? I'm, I have a class. I want you to join. Just, just tune in. It's free. It's online. Right? Imagine that. That's also sharing someone else's because if it's something that you really, really enjoy, and you're not trying to convert somebody. You're not trying to persuade them. There's not, we don't do any of that here. It's just to open up people's eyes, our own eyes, my own eyes, to the wisdom of the Torah. This is our gift, by the way. This The gift does not belong to the rabbis. It doesn't belong to the yeshiva students. It belongs to every single Jew. It's your Torah. It's our Torah. We have to demand it. Yes, we want to learn more. We want to learn more, right? I have two incredible people here in the classroom. You don't see them. You don't see them. But how many classes did you guys initiate? right? It was your initiation. You said, you know what, Rabbi? I want a class in Talmud. We started a class in Talmud. Rabbi, we want a class in prayer. Oh, we started a class in prayer, right? It's an incredible thing. And you have a tremendous merit. You should just know, a tremendous merit. But if we all thought like that, and we all said, you know what, we want more opportunities so that we can, you know, get our our friends together. And, you know, because I guarantee you every soul wants to connect with with its source. That source is the Torah. It's godliness. So imagine you have a friend who's looking for that source, may not say it, and we don't ever put our hand over their shoulder and say, hey, why don't you join me? I think you'll like this. That's also shearing the burden. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz said on Yom Kippur, he would say this every single Yom Kippur Eve, right after Kol Nidre, he'd get up and say that anybody who hasn't lost a night of sleep in pain for God's children who don't have a relationship with him, he says, what are you coming to Yom Kippur for? 
What are you coming to Yom Kippur for? That's a very powerful thing. All right? So, yes, our spouse, our children feel their pain, our community, our friends, our, right? Our neighbors, right? But then it goes to a much higher level. It goes to a much bigger level. The Jewish people, we're talking about the people of the world, right? Of course, animals, right? All of God's creations. But how about God himself? Can we feel what God is? And it's, it's, it's like God is not a human, right? So it's like he doesn't have emotions like we do. But like that individual at the wedding is feeling the joy, the celebration that in the heavens there probably is that joy as well. That means it, the, 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 what we're trying to get here, what we're trying to get is to be at a stage where we're not only living in our own little box. I'm going to say it till I'm blue in the face. We have to get out of our own skin, get out of our own little, you know, experience and get into someone else's experience. You know, there's another another amazing Mishnah in Ethics of Our Fathers that says, Al Tadin Adam Don't judge your fellow till you're standing in his place. Right? Think of that. If we don't practice with easy things, there's no way in the world we'll get when it's when it's a challenging judgment call to get into someone else's shoes. And it's not easy. I don't think we can ever get into someone's shoes, really. I don't think we can ever fully understand someone else's situation because we're all so nuanced and and, and sophisticated as human beings. It's not simple for us to just say, oh, I get it. I, I Oh, I know exactly how you're feeling. No, we don't always know what we're feeling. But we can try and take a few seconds every day Look at someone else. Look at the person sitting next to you. And just what what is what possibly are they in need of? How can I share that burden with them? So there's still still um to so our sages tell us, even if you're a man of power, share the pain of your city. A very important thing. You know that in, in, in Noah's Ark, Noah's Ark, they weren't allowed to cohabitate. Why? Here the whole world is being destroyed and you're going to go along and... You're not, no, that, that, that doesn't work. You have to at least feel their pain. It says, that the halacha says this, is that whenever there's a tragedy in one city, that's not the right time to cohabitate. Feel the pain. Feel the pain of another person. So we, we're... we're we're being primed. We're being primed by the by halacha. We're being primed through the teachings of the Talmud, through the Mishnah, to get into someone else's situation. Again, good, bad, right? Happy, sad. All of this, whatever someone else is going through, to be there with them. One of the things I told my friend in Dallas uh, yesterday is, I said. Um, I said to him, I was always wondering, I had a similar situation that he was going through. Not the same exact, but I was always wondering, why did it need to happen to me? And I told him yesterday, I said, 
it's clear that your situation is more severe than mine. But I have just a little bit of an idea of how painful your situation is. Just a little bit. I, I could see on his face, it's like he was happy that I was, that I was able to think into his situation. And he saw the comparison of what I experienced and what he experiences, what he's experiencing now. But to just a little bit, so our, um, one of the commentaries says, to acquire Torah, you need to have a good heart. Feelings one, one's pain is just that, right? Walking in Hashem's ways. Hashem feels our situation. Hashem knows exactly what we're going through. The power of our prayer. Hashem feels exactly what we're going through. When we see like suddenly like, wow, finally, right? It's resolved. It's come through. How did that happen? Right? We have this manager up above who's making things happen for us. He feels our situation. He knows exactly what we're experiencing. It says that the, the Jewish cops that were placed by the Egyptians didn't hit the Jews out of pity. Instead, they got hit. Right? The, the Egyptians said, we're not going to beat the Jewish slaves. The Jewish cops that we're going to place are going to beat the Jewish slaves. Similar to what the Nazis did in Germany. So the Jewish cops said, no, we're not going to hit our fellow Jew. We'll instead get beat. We're not going to hit our fellow Jew. Um, and they were punished very dearly. But that's really getting into what our fellow is experiencing. Right? They're going to be in such pain. I want to share with you an amazing story. Like to mention the Holocaust, I get reminded of the story. So there was a group of CEOs who went to Israel on a, uh, on a business, uh, business trip. They're going to do alliances and partnerships with Israeli companies. One of those individuals was Howard Schultz, from a CEO of Starbucks. One of those individuals was uh, Michael Dell from Dell Computers and many other Jewish CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, uh, probably Fortune 100 companies. And they had the privilege of going to the Mir Yeshiva that we mentioned previously, and they met with the rabbi of the Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva. And the head of the Yeshiva walks into the room and he tells them, why were so many Jews saved from the Holocaust? There were many that were murdered. We know that. But why were so many saved? I mean, they didn't have weapons. They didn't have a way to, to protect themselves. And what merit did they say that those who were saved, like three of my grandparents, right, in what merit did they make it out of life? So everyone went around and gave their, their theory. And then the rabbi said, let me, let me share with you something. He says, in the barracks, and they had five people per barrack, barracks. They were given one blanket. And instead of saying, I want the blanket, I want the blanket, I want the blanket, they said, no, 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 you take the blanket. You take the blanket. And he's like, no, you take the blanket. He says, and all five people in the barracks covered themselves with the same blanket. So the rabbi turned to these CEOs and he said to them, each one of you has a blanket. Share your blanket with other people. 
Share your blanket. You were given a special gift. Share your blanket. Don't keep it for yourself. Oh, it's all for me. Buy another vacation home. Right? Another, right? No, no, no. You can give it to the JCC and you can give it to the to the synagogues and you can give it to all the, all the incredible institutions that need it. Do you know, I, I have a theory. I've shared this theory before. I, I'm just talking Houston now. I'm sure in each one of your respective cities, it's the same exact thing. If they made a concerted effort that every Jewish donation goes for one year only, okay, every donation goes only to a Jewish institution for one year, my estimation is that they will never they will never need to have another fundraiser again in that city. Even the city of Houston, people dedicated their money one year only to the Jewish institutions. And instead, now it's not it's not a bad thing, but it, it would be, I think, better. I'm not here to prioritize, but to feel what other Jewish institutions are experiencing. I've gone to several different uh, museums. I mean, we can exist without museums, right? But the amount of money that people are pouring into them is just astonishing. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's, it's, it's great to give charity. It's a very important thing. Very, very important. And we're going to get to it. We're going to talk about it. But if we only gave it to institutions, the Jewish institutions, for one year, feel the burden of your city, and keep it in your city for one year, it would, it would eliminate all the fundraisers forever. I wasn't uh, gifted with that resource, those resources. So, but either way, so let's let's continue here. So, it's a form of humility that allows one to be a receptacle for Torah. If someone is able to feel someone else, if we're able to open our, ourselves to feel someone else, someone else's situation, then we're able to be really open as a receptacle to receive the Torah. That's what it is. When we open ourselves up, we're able to receive. Every single person on planet Earth is a child of God. Every is a child of Hashem. Right? How can we not feel the pain of another person? I'll give you an example. Another person means, essentially, it's part of our own flesh and blood, right? Our humanity. I ask a question, okay? If, if my right hand was cutting up uh, carrots and the knife went off course and sliced my finger, would my left hand now grab the knife and hit my right hand? No, because, hello, you're part of one body. You're part of one entity. That's why we need to feel with one another. We're part of one entity. If one is in pain, if my right hand is in pain, my left hand feels that pain. We have to, you have to, if not, I have a study partner we learn with, we, I learn with every Monday night, and we talk about this specific topic about seeing the godliness in every person. Every person, the neshama, the soul that we have is a godly spark. It's not an easy task, but to see the spark in every person. Every person has a spark, even if they don't vote the way you vote. And even if they don't pray where you pray or they're not affiliated or not your religion, 
every human being has a spark. And to be able to be sensitive to see that spark, that light that's within them. The, the Torah teaches us, and by the way, we see from our prayers that we're always thinking about others. All of our prayers are plural. We ask for wisdom. We don't say, give me wisdom. Give us wisdom. Chaneinu, give us wisdom. Slachlanu, forgive us. Hashivenu, return us. Rifa'enu, heal us. Barechaleinu, bless us. Not thinking only about ourselves. Our prayer, our entire prayer is in plural. Because we're not only praying for ourselves. This is so fundamental. To take it past that, if we're able to be to carry the burden with our fellow. I'm with you. I'm trying to feel your situation, your pain. Visualizing it. Visualizing the experience they have. And I was thinking about your your case that we gave just before. Imagine sitting in that hospital bed. And you see, you hear the, the, the beeping of the machine and you see, right? It's, it's an awful, it's a dreadful experience, but we've all been there for one reason or another. Hopefully, you know, it's for giving babies, having babies and not for other things, not for illnesses. And it's, you know, giving birth to babies, but it's like we can experience what it means, what that means to be a little lonely, maybe. That's why we have a commandment, right? To go visit the sick because they are lonely to be there with them. Yeah, so 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 you may not have had that illness, you may not have broken that leg, but you know what it means to be alone. You know what it means to be in pain. You know what it means to have that toothache. Call back that friend and tell him, you know what, I'm so sorry. I I I I, feel, I know what it means to have that pain, that debilitating pain. And it's so it's so it's so you know everyone here I'm sure has had some type of toothache. You can think back to like, oh, that's awful. I'm so sorry not going to heal it per se but it'll make them feel like someone's there with them so i want to end off with one more story there's a great sage his name was rabbeinu tam rabbeinu tam was one of the early sages right after the talmud and he was called rabbeinu tam tam means perfect perfection so how did he get this name the rabbi of perfection you know the perfect rabbi so they say the following story. He was, he made a decree for the following situation. Okay. What used to happen is that when a, a, a young man and a young woman decided to get married, they'd get engaged and they would have a year long engagement. And then after that year, the, during that year, they would build up a dowry. They would buy her a home and they would start furnishing that home. And getting all of her pots and pans and all of the, you know. And then at the end of that year, they would and they, they would conclude that engagement with marriage. Okay? So it would be a long engagement. Now what would happen if, God forbid, during that year, the bride passed away? Tragic accident. She passed away. So Rabbeinu Tam made a decree that the dowry that was accumulated 
during that year goes back to the house of the girl, goes back to her family. It doesn't stay with the groom. Even though they're half married already, it goes back to her family. Why? Because imagine the family sitting there mourning their daughter who had such a bright future. She was going to be such a great mother. She was going to be such a great teacher. She was such a special leader of the Jewish people. She was going to be such an incredible person. And she was taken at a young age. She wasn't even able to get married yet. And she wasn't even able to have that, that great privilege of all. And now what? It was just taken away. And then they're going to give one more little cry. Oi! And we also lost the dowry. That one little cry, that one little kvetch, Rabbeinu Tam eliminated from them. For that, he was named Rabbeinu Tam. Perfect. The rabbi of perfection. Why? He was able to remove one more pain from a grieving family. That's the unbelievable sensitivity that this trait teaches us. To really get into what is going on here. What is really happening with this mourning family. And we sometimes will never understand completely. But we'll try. Give an effort. And I think if we can take just a few minutes. Just a few minutes. Every day this coming week. To think of someone. Open up your phone. Find someone. And just think about the last conversation you had with them. What is it that they're in need of? Maybe throw out a little prayer on their behalf. Feel, try. We should try. And it starts with, don't try to say like, okay, from now on, whenever I talk to someone, I'm going to try to get, no, 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 don't, don't do a whole, don't try to change the whole world in one, right? Take something, five seconds, 10 seconds to just think about someone else's situation. And we're not going to get into all the depths of it. And we're not going to be able to perhaps, right in the beginning, get into all of the empathy that's required for someone else's situation. As much as we can. Take a step. My dear friends, if you have those worksheets, please take a few minutes right after you, you log off. Write out what the topic was, the, the, the trait of carrying your fellow's burden. And then start journaling. What is your definition? What does it mean? And how are, you, how are we going to incorporate this into our daily lives. So that's my idea. Hopefully it'll be successful. I look forward to hearing from everyone. You can email me with your questions throughout the week. For all of you who are online, thank you very much for joining us. You can unmute your microphones now and uh, ask any questions that you like. For those of you listening on the podcast, thank you very much for listening and we hope you join us again next week. You've been listening to the Jewish Inspiration Podcast, a Torch production. Become a supporter at torchweb.org because your assistance enables more Torah learning around the globe. To find more lessons offered by Torch, please visit torchpodcasts.com.